Let us continue our worship in the Word of God. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 16 through 32, and then we will jump to also Romans 10, 1 through 13. I know we are reading um, kind of longer passages uh, than usual, but I really believe that the Word of God is living and active, powerful. The most powerful thing in this world is the Word of God. And as we read and recite the Word, clearly we will experience the very power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let us read by faith. By the way, reading of the Scripture is a part of worshiping the Lord. And it has a power in it. So I really want all of us to read carefully the Romans 1, 16 through 32. And may the Lord our God ever so powerfully speak to you through the Scripture. Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteous that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who surpass the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of the hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with the lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it, think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, 
and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It sounds like we are reading the news of today's world, right? Turn to Romans 10, verse 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteous for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring, down Christ, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Listen, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen? What a powerful words of our Lord. And may these words be planted in your hearts. May we digest it. May we hide it in your heart that it will do its work through the power of the Holy Spirit. For the last five weeks, we have been studying the process of being born again. If you remember, what are the four things about being born again? Repent to the Father. Believe in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Be baptized in water. And receive the Holy Spirit. Those are the four things of the process of being born again. We've been talking about this for two reasons. First, effective evangelism of our ministry. Second, we wanted to also have efficient evaluation of our own faith. As we are living in the end of the last days, I mean, look around. 
watch the news, watch the news and, and just look everything around us. Things are tough, difficult, chaotic, and troublesome. We are living in the end of the last days. Not just when you're looking socially or, uh, you know, just culturally, but spiritually speaking, we are clearly living in the last days, end of the last days. And as we are living in such time as this, we are to continue to do effective evangelism, sharing the gospel, sharing our faith to those who do not know Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the answer to all our problems. Our government is not the one who provides the answers. Ourselves cannot save our save. We really need to believe in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the one who can bring the righteousness, the answers for our life. Amen. Now, as we are trying to think about effective evangelism, let us think about two questions. And let me ask these two questions, and let us try to answer this question. First, what kind of God are you going to present to the world as God's people? Second, what kind of gospel are you going to preach? We need to think about those two questions. You know, according to the recent census stats, <clears throat> about 80% of people in our country claim, them, claim to believe in God. 80%. If you ask, do you believe in God? They will say, yes, I believe in God. However, it is kind of irrelevant and insignificant to the point of meaningless. Why? Because it is obvious that, obvious that, that their belief in God doesn't affect their lives one little bit. It doesn't affect them at all. And that's why it's not really good enough for us to ask, do you believe in God anymore? Now, we need to ask, first of all, then, which God do you believe? I mean, think about the diversity of religions today. Think about your neighbors. Not many people are believing in Jesus. As a matter of fact, my kids have been always telling me that in their school, there are very few Christians. We have so many different religions because of the all different kinds of culture and different kinds of people are coming into this country. That's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But now the question we need to ask then is, which God? We have different gods next door. Which God do you believe in? That's the question that we need to ask. But still, we need to ask this. What kind of God? Because it doesn't really matter if you believe in God or not. What does matter is what kind of God you do or you don't believe in. You know, this question is actually very relevant to atheists as well. Atheists, what are, who are the atheists? Those people who do not believe in God. Well, I have some friends, very smart friends, who are highly educated in the higher educations. They're the doctors and and, you know, in the PhDs and all that. But they're atheists. They don't believe in God. One time, I was conversing with one of my, my friends um, who was actually the physics doctor. 
is a physicist. And uh, he's basically saying, I don't believe in God. So I asked, tell me what kind of God you don't believe in. And at the end of the conversation, I actually told him this. I agree with you. I don't believe in that kind of God either. My brothers and sisters, never condemn an atheist until you find out what kind of God he was told to believe in. You see, the real question is, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do we as Christians present to the world? Very basic questions, right? He is a kind God or is he cruel God? Does he care about us or indifferent about us? Does he hate us or love us? Now, this kind of question is going to make a huge difference to the way we live. What kind of God you believe in? What does he think about us? What does he feel about us? What will he do with us, especially when we depart from this world and face him? What kind of God are we presenting? Now, the most common answer to that question is this. I'm sure you heard this phrase over and over again. What is the message of the Christianity today when we represent, represent God to the world? God is love. And I think all of us, we've been hearing that, we've been taught that, and it is true because Scripture says God is love. This universal picture, therefore, is that Christian God is love. Not bad. It's correct. But my question to this is this. Is this right way for us to present the picture of God to the world? As if the heart of the gospel in the New Testament is actually, He is so loving and He loves you so much. Really? As I'm trying to read the Bible in depth and study the Bible over the years, I'm not sure that is the heart of the New Testament gospel. I think we need to, remember last week we talked about we need to unlearn unbiblical notions that we have been learned from our traditions. I think we ask, we ask God, Lord, help us to know and live by the truth, not by the tradition. Amen. Everywhere today we hear this, this phrase, unconditional love of God, right? You probably heard it at one point of your life, especially when somebody's trying to present the gospel to you, unconditional love of God. But I'll tell you, you won't find this phrase in the Bible. This kind of idea of unconditional love of God is not in the Bible. What? Where do you get this idea then? What does it mean by that when we say that? See, God loves you no matter what you do. Is it in the Bible? I remember reading the article when one denomination was ordaining the gay clergy. Uh, basically, he was interviewed. Oh, this is a historic moment for our denomination that God is love and his love is unconditional and he accepts us and his love he is it is non-judgmental those are the two words that they use unconditional non-judgmental 
Just come as you are. That's what we hear all the time. And there's some truth to it. But did you ever find that in the Bible? Just come as you are. Don't change anything. Just come as you are when you approach God. This idea of God loves everybody unconditionally and He wants them all to come to Him just as they are, then everybody can be happy. I am not sure as I read the gospel over and over again, as I read the New Testament over and over again, is that the right picture of the gospel? It implies when we emphasize to the unbelievers that God is love, that we are lovable, He loves us because we are so lovable. That because we measure our love, His love, by ours. We're trying to understand God's love through understanding our own love. How do we love? We love what is lovable to us, right? By extension, we think that we must be lovable to God. That's why He loves us. He loves everybody because we are so lovable. We are so special right? The culture is saying, oh, don't tell any kids. They are not special. Everybody is special. Well, in the Old Testament, God told the Jews, you know what God told the Jews in the Old Testament? He said, I don't love you because you are special. Isn't it interesting? I don't love you because you're special. You are special because I love you. That is a biblical emphasis. I don't love you because you are special, but you are special because I love you. God's love for us makes us special. Not God loves us because we are so special. We have to be clear about that. See, God does not love us because we are lovable, because He is love. That's what the Bible says. So we have this issue, I think, of overemphasis on the God of love in our preaching, in our sharing the gospel to the unbelievers. Something that apostles in the New Testament never did. If you read carefully the book of Acts, none of the apostles were preaching the gospel of unconditional love of God. They, none of them said, just come as you are. God will accept you as who you are. When we emphasize on the love of God, we will be, have a problem with a couple of things. First, there will be no repentance needed. You don't need to repent. Just come as you are. God is unconditionally loving you. Why do you have to change? then we won't be able to teach sin anymore. Why? It offends people. Hey, God loves us no matter what. Why do we even have to worry about problem of sin? That means, how can we, what about the punishment of hell? Punishment, that judgment that will come. See, impression that we are giving by preaching the God of love is to rule out some of the vital components of the gospel. Repentance, possibility of hell, the judge, no judgment, these things. It conveys to the people that there will be no judgment. 
And I don't know how, as Christians, we can share the gospel partially, not talking about repentance and possible judgment that's coming. Not possible, real judgment that's coming. People are actually saved, and you will see some of the magazines. How could God of love judge us and send us hell? Send us to hell, right? If we just emphasize, oh, God is love, He's unconditionally loving you, He will come, just come as you are, He will accept you, then we will have a problems. How, that kind of, how can that kind of God judge people? How are we going to answer that? You see the problem here? I hope you see the problem. God is love. Yes, that's a sacred message to our faith. Yes, He is love. Yet, we have taken something that is so sacred to us and thrown it out without any mention of what God hates or what disgusts God or what, God, what makes Him angry. But if you read carefully, you can clearly see the Bible is a full of such things, things that God does not like. God hates, God detests. How come we don't, we don't focus on that? What disgusts God is when we confuse gender. That's in the Bible. Sexual immorality is abomination to God. When we say what is right is wrong, He does not like it. He hates it. He hates sin. That's in the Bible. Full of it. And God is the same yesterday, today, and God never changed in terms of these things. Amen. Now, question is, what kind of God are we presenting to the world? In ideological or political social issues, we often ask, how certain people feel about it. Certain Christians or certain denominations think about or feel about certain issues, social issues. Yet, I don't find anybody asking how God feels about certain issues. Right? Do we ever ask, how does He feel? How does God feel about what is happening in our understanding of sexuality? How does if God feel about some of the social issues that we are facing today? It's all about how you feel, how a certain group feel, how certain Christians feel. And we ask everybody, but we don't ask God. Meaning we don't look into the Bible and we say, Bible is outdated. Oh, we try to justify whatever the Bible by coming bits and pieces of the, from the Bible. What does God feel about sexual immorality, about abortion, about all the wrong, wicked things that are happening, about greed, right? What about all kinds of things happening today? How does He feel? Do we ever ask Him? See, when we say God is love and we stop there, we are conveying a God who is tolerant, indulgent, and accepting anything. We have to be very careful. That is not the full gospel that we are to present. Let me give you two results 
of preaching of God of love to the unbelievers. When we are preaching this God is love, which is a sacred message to us, but when we put that out as a front message, what will happen? Especially to the world, to the non-believers. Two things will happen. First, there will be a loss of reverence for God. No, what does it mean by reverence? More than respect. It means, it means fear, awe, A-W-E, awe of God. We will lose that. We lost that in the church, in the world today. The world does not respect, revere, nor even fear, even have awe of God anymore. This idea of the reverence disappeared in the nation. You know why it disappeared? You know why our friends do not care about God, do not even worry about, do not even fear God? You know why? Because it disappeared in the church. Christians, God's people, don't even fear God today. How do I know? Look at how we worship. How do you come before the Lord? I'm trying to pray and try to teach you what kind of attitude are you bringing in? Is it just casual attitude? Oh, it's another Sunday. Oh, okay. I love you, Lord. Great. Hallelujah. No respect. When we see presidents of this nation, I'm sure we are not going to be doing this. Hey, are you going to bring the same attitude that you bring to the Sunday service today when you are seeing the president of the United States? Or even senator? Okay, fine. Even your, your boss wants to have a meeting with you. Serious meeting. Do you bring the same? See, fear of the Lord brings reverence. When it's lost in the church, whole world will not care. We should worship God in awe and reverence because, Bible, you know why? Bible said God is holy and He is consuming fire. That's the description. You know what consuming fire actually is? I'm not sure. Sometimes in California, we have a wildfire, right? You know the speed of those wildfire just taking off the whole land? It's about, 60, about 50 to 60 miles per hour. Depending upon the wind, the fire moves and literally destroys and burns everything. That's the consuming fire. Imagine you are driving the car. Unless you drive 60 miles, the fire is going to just consume you, your car. Imagine that. You need to run away, right? That's the consuming fire. That's a little glimpse of it. Well, God is consuming fire, the Bible says. Did you know? You know, I went to the Philippines many times, and there was one place in Tagaytay. Uh, there is an active volcano still there. And um, when we are there, we're kind of trying to approach to the like hot volcano mountain, right? The volcano. And guess what? It was a, a several distance but the heat, oh man, from the, from, the, from the volcano was tremendous to the point where, like, 
it kind of scared us, like a lot of us. We're like, oh, man, this is too hot. I mean, Philippines is very hot, tropical area, plus the volcano heat. Oh, man, it was not funny. It was like painful heat to the point where as we approached, man, I was like, what if it actually erupts? Man, it's going to be kind of, you know, you're going to have a, oh, what if it erupts out of nowhere? Because it's still active. And you'll be like, man, this is not a joke how we feel. Well, let me ask you this. When you come to church to worship God, do you feel that too? That sense of, wow, what if he erupts? He's a consuming fire. Do you bring that kind of attitude of reverence when you come to worship him? I don't think we do. People bring all their works in the church. You do the same thing that you do at home when you worship. We have a problem. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the Bible says. We fear everything else yet but God. Isn't it interesting? You talk to everybody. People fear of what? Old age. They're scared to being old or getting older. They're, they're, they're scared of being ill, losing their health, especially the COVID situation. That's exactly what it is, the fear. Oh, fear of, oh, what if I get it? I'm in trouble. But did you know, my brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is the cure for every fear in your life. And we are to fear nothing, nobody except God. If you fear God, then you will fear nothing or nobody else. Such attitude will show in our worship. That's why, my brothers and sisters, we got to be very careful with being casual with God. This coming Friday, we're going to be doing the, uh, we are still on Friday, we do uh, overview of the Pentateuch. And we're going to be talking about Numbers, the book of Numbers. Numbers actually talks about that. God is warning. Leviticus and Numbers, why do we have to read this old, ancient Jewish law, ceremonial laws, all that stuff? Well, it teaches us that we cannot be casual with God. It teaches us we need to have a proper distance and proper respect and reverence toward God. Even as Christians, we must have that. Amen. Amen. We are in the very presence of the Almighty God when you come to church. How are you going to come? Oh, I feel sick a little bit. Oh, I have a headache. Oh, I have this. Oh, I, I'm sorry I, I, I woke up late. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't have a time to take shower. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's see how you do it when you are talking to your uh, the job interview. How come we don't respect God when we try to respect everyone else? Has he given us what we deserve? If he give us what we deserve, we wouldn't be here, my brothers and sisters. He's a consuming fire. But because he's also love, he provided his son, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life because he's love. Only reason that we are here today is by God's mercy and grace, not because we deserve it. See, there is a balance. He's a loving father, yet he's also holy father. He's a consuming fire. And we have to take God as whole. Amen. As who he is. Not just partially. Oh, I like this part of God and I will just focus on it. No, 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 no. Look at him as a whole person. He is holy yet loving. He's righteous yet forgiving. That's why we can approach him. And how much more than we should be thankful when we come to church, when we approach him in our worship. You cannot just get parts of God that you like. You know, so there's a loss of reverence. Second thing is there will be a loss when we are just focusing on the love of God. This is what will happen. There will be a loss of repentance. When we just preach God of love, we will lose the part of the repentance. Instead of calling people to repent, we'll call them to what? Accept Jesus into your heart. Invite him. Right? That's what we do. Make decisions today. Instead of we say, repent, the kingdom of God is near. We baptize them if you believe in Jesus Christ, but the baptism has to include repentance. There got to be a proof of repentance. Can you imagine if you start only, if you can only baptize people who are, who have the proof, proof of repentance? Imagine that, how many people can be baptized. Now, how was your baptism in your church in the past? Did you give the proof of your repentance? Or just because your parents were part of a church member that you were baptized? Did you really believe and repent and believe in Christ and then receive the baptism? We need to think about these things, my brothers and sisters. That's exactly what the apostle said. Repent and believe. They never say, believe first and then repent later. You won't be able to believe in God as whole person unless you repent. See, that was the idea. That was the first step of being a Christian. First step, repentance, not faith. By the way, repentance comes based on faith because you believe in God. Yes. But you know what I mean. Just come as you are. God will accept you. Invite him to your heart. Open your heart. When we bring that kind of message, gospel message to the people, I'll tell you, they will not repent. No one will repent. Right? The first step of kingdom of God is repentance. We have to be very careful, my brothers and sisters, how we present God to the world. One thing we don't say in our evangelism today is repent. 
is dangerous, I believe, because you are presenting a partial truth of the gospel. We need to present the full gospel. Repent and believe. Amen? Never say God will accept you, just come as you are. We have to say, repent, come back to Him. He will forgive you and believe in Him. He will save you. Isn't that what the Bible says? We read in Romans, in our hearts, when we repent, right, we are justified. And in our mouth, as we profess our faith, what? We are saved. I'm thinking about evangelism in the church, including our church. Do we say, do we say this part? One person came to me one day, one day and asked me, what is repentance? You know what I told him? You know, this guy was, I'm not going to go into theological debate into this person and say repentance is really about coming back to God, confessing your sins. You know what I said? Ask Jesus anything in your life that, ask Jesus anything in my life that Jesus does not like and get rid of it. That's repentance. You ask Jesus, Lord, what are the things that you do not like about my life? And get rid of them. Stop doing them. That's repentance. Very simple, isn't it? That's what I told my kids. What is repentance? Anything that Jesus does not like in your life, you need to get rid of it. How do you know? Ask Jesus, what do you not like about my life? Right? Did you ever ask that question to Jesus? Lord Jesus, what do you not like about my life? In my life, what are the things that I do that you do not like? What are the thoughts that I, you do, thoughts that I have you do not like? And when God convicts you, you said, fine, I'll stop. I'll change. That's repentance. Nothing else. And we go on repenting and repenting. Christian life is about a series of repentance, coming back to God, right? Because we still struggle with our flesh. But you've got to begin repenting at the very beginning. That's the point. The relationship starts with the repentance when you come back to Him. Think about the prodigal son story. I'm sure everybody knows, right? When Father was waiting. That's the loving father, yes. But he does not go and chase after him to the foreign country, does he? No, he waits. Why? Because he needs to wait for her, his son to return to him. And when the prodigal son realized he needs to come back to the father, which is a repentance, that's when the forgiveness can be given to the person. How would you receive the forgiveness unless you come to God? Don't you say, oh, God forgives me because God is loving. He accepts me just as I am. No, 
you need to confess your, faith, your, your sin. You need to come to him and say, God, I have sinned against you. Then he is loving and kind. He will give you forgiveness if you believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Unless you, there is repentance, there is no forgiveness. We have to be very clear about these things. Let me go on. There are two things that you might shock you. And I'm trying to... Try, try, oh, please, I'm not trying to cause any problems in your life or, you know, some confusion. There are two things that we need to really think about. Did you know, my brothers and sisters, there is very little about the love of God, love of God mentioned in the Bible. You'd be surprised. Right? Very little reference about love of God in the Bible. And you might say, what? Yet we make it the biggest thing. You got to go to the last page, couple pages, to find that the God is love. Think about the book of Pentateuch, the first very five books that Moses wrote. Torah for the Jews. Did you know there is no, not a single one verse about the love of God? I mean, not a single, I'm sorry. There's only one verse about the love of God in Deuteronomy. Remember I told you, I'm not, I don't love you because you're special. I love you, therefore you're special. That's actually from the book of Deuteronomy. Isn't it interesting? Historical books, Joshua, book of Judges, and you go on. There's no, not really mention about, referenced clearly about the love of God. Did you know that? You won't really find that. Prophets, if you read prophets, major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you will find, you, on any reference to the love of God? Not really. Only one minor prophet called Hosea, you will see full of the loving love of God. What about the book of Jonah? What was the message that God gave to Jonah to talk to the Nineveh? Do you remember? Was it, oh, Nineveh, Nineveh, people of Nineveh, I love you. That was the message? No. In 40 days, you'll be destroyed if you do not repent. Remember that? That was the message of Jonah. Given to, to Jonah to speak to the Nineveh. It wasn't that, oh, people, I love you so much. Won't you love me back? No. He says, what? There will be judgment in 40 days unless you repent. What about New Testament, for instance? You will find, ref I'm talking about reference of love of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, John, there are. Let me go back to John later. Let me explain this book of John, okay? But Mark and Luke, no, you won't find that. Book of Acts, Never preach the love of God. Isn't it interesting? You talk, you talk about evangelism. You study evangelism in the book of Acts because the book of Acts was the very first Christians who are going out there preaching the gospel after the ascension of Jesus Christ. So you will see the first evangelism effort by the first church in the book of Acts. In their message, there was ne they never preached the love of God. The four things that I talked about, repent, believe in Jesus' faith, and uh, baptism in water and the reception of the Holy Spirit, that comes from the book of Acts. I'm not making these things up. You can, you can go and check. 
You can Google it. You can actually go to the, the Bible app and say, love of God, and type it, and what kind of message you come. Book of Acts, epistles, love of God, one verse in Romans about the, about the love of God. Ephesians 2 and 3, yes. Some Colossians, the, yes, but not that many. Revelation, there's no reference to the love of God. Interesting, isn't it? However, second shocking thing that you will find out is this. All the reference to the love of God in the Bible is, that, is not directed to the unbelievers or to the world. Isn't it interesting? All the reference to the love of God is directly directed toward the redeemed people. Isn't it interesting? What mention of love of God there is always directed to those people who repented and came to God. To those who already repented and forgiven. Though to those who know that God loves them because they were forgiven. Because He has forgiven them. And they love Him so much because they have been forgiven by God. Every mention of love of God in the Scripture is directed toward those who repented and been forgiven. Those who are redeemed by faith. Isn't it interesting? In the New Testament, Christians knew the love of God because they have experienced it. They knew God loves me because they experienced it. They repented. They came back and they knew that through Jesus' work, they were forgiven and they were so in love with God. And he, they said, God is love because they were forgiven through their repentance. I know, it's kind of shocking, but it is true. And I'm not saying God is not love. God is love. But how are we going to present God to the world? That is the question that we're asking, right? So I want you to know this very clearly. Let's go to the book of John before we end. What about John's gospel? Well, John is known as what? The disciple of love. Why? He talks about God's love. Famous, God, famous passage from John chapter 3, verse 16, right? God so loved the world that he, he gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in a way, we Christians made that John three sixteen the whole of the gospel. And every time we share the gospel, this thing comes out, and we made that as a whole gospel. Well, it's not the gospel of Paul Peter, even John preached in the book of Acts. Because there's, we, in a way, made it up. I mean, we made that as our whole gospel rather than the apostles. Did you know, my brothers and sisters, John chapter 3, 16, there was no mention of repentance. You just say, believe. Is that the full representation of the gospel as we know of in the Bible, in the New Testament? No. But you might say, then what was John doing? Well, let me tell you this. First of all, John's gospel was written for not the non-believers. He was written for believers. Are we clear? He was writing to the believers. And you might say, why did John write this gospel? By the way, John's gospel was written 60 years after Jesus rose again. Okay? 
60 years. So they already had the book of Luke, book of Matthew, book of Mark. Okay? They already made the gospel. But why did John, after they had the already three gospels ready, well, why did he write this 60 years after Jesus' ascension? Why did he do that? Well, this was the problem. No, this was the reason why John wrote this gospel 60 years after, even though there were three gospels already written. He says in the last chapter of John, read the last chapter of John, he said, I'm writing this to you so that what? You may continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Sixty years later, you know what happened to first Christians? People were coming to the notion that is very much like Jehovah's Witnesses' notion of Jesus. They were saying Jesus was just a creature. He was not creator. And there was a theological problems, right? Gnostic gospel, we call it. We call it, there's a different kinds of things were happening. People were not believing in Jesus. Oh, Jesus is not fully human. Jesus was not fully God. He is actually a creature. He was a different being. And all kinds of different notions of Jesus was happening. And John said, hey, wait a minute. We have to be very clear. I'm writing these things to you so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is 100% man, he's 100% God. He's writing that for that reason. Amen. Do you see that? So audience for John's gospel was not unbelievers, non-believers. It was for the believers to so that we may continue to believe. That is why in John chapter 16, it doesn't talk about the full process of believing in Jesus or being born again. He's just making the point. That's why if you look at John's gospel, you will see the 777. He actually writes about seven witnesses about Jesus being the Son of God. He talks about seven miracles that Jesus did, which confirms that He is God, in fact, not just human. But also, He talks about seven statements of I am. Remember, seven, I taught uh, the series on seven sayings of Jesus, I am. Well, I am in Hebrew, what means? Yahweh, meaning God. I am that I am. And Jesus is saying, I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. John is intentionally writing these seven witnesses, seven miracles, seven statements of I am of Jesus, so that making a point, you may continue to believe as believers that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God. And in John's gospel, in any, any book of New Testament, you will say whenever you hear believe, it's, a, it's in present tense in Greek, which means continuous action. You need to go on believing. Not just one time you believed I am saved and I believed I have faith. No, you go on believing today as you did yesterday. You go on believing tomorrow that Jesus is the Son of God. He is love of God. And John said, I have written this gospel so that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you actually use that, I think the proper translation for John 3.16 is this. For God so loved the world, whoever goes on believing him will, have, will go on having the eternal life. 
That's the concept. Clearly, the love of God mentioned in the Bible was not directed to the world, to the unbelievers. It was actually toward the believers. How can we understand the love of God unless you repent and believe in Christ, right? How can you understand the, how God loves you unless you come back to Him and experience His love of forgiveness? Unless you experience the forgiveness of God in your life, I don't think you'll be able to know that God loves you. It's, it was the experiential knowledge. And all of us, as we are forgiven, we know He loves us. Amen? Amen. Then what can we preach? How can we present God to the world? What kind of God are we going to present? What kind of message are we going to preach? Or have you ever going to preach? Or are we going to just sit down? See, unless you experience the love of God experientially, I don't think you'll be able to go out and preach the gospel because you don't believe in it, because you never experienced it. You know why some people are so crazy about sharing the gospel? Because they understood, they experienced the love through the forgiveness as they repented. You might ask, how come God, I'm not really go, excited about going out there? Well, you have to ask you, ask you, do you really believe that God actually has forgiven you? Do you even have a relationship with God? Are you thankful? Right? That's a good measurement to take, isn't it? Because if you're really forgiven and if you really understand the love of God, oh my goodness, you are going to go, you're going to share with all the people that you can. What about your mom? What about your dad? What about your cousins? What about your, starting with your family members? What about my friends who do not know Jesus and the love of God? But how are we going to preach to them? How are we going to present the gospel or present our God to them? I think instead of starting to the non-believers, I'm talking about how are we going to effectively share the gospel, we need to go back to the Bible, how the apostles did. Instead of starting with the God is love, perhaps we should start with God is good. That's what he started in Genesis chapter 1, right? God is good. He made the world, and he was good. However, the problem of the word good is that we've been using this good, the word good, very casually. It's a good dog, we say, right? Hey, it's a good food. But did you know when Jesus was asked by the young rich ruler, one time he came to him and said, good teacher, interesting, good teacher, Jesus, rabbi, good rabbi, how can I receive the eternal life? You know what Jesus said? Why do you call me good? He said, only God is good, no one else. Interesting, isn't it? Meaning, do you know that I'm God? If you're saying, I'm good, are you saying, I am God? Do you know only God is good, no one else is in this world? Yet, we don't use the word good in that way. Oh, you're, he's a good person. Really? Some ladies who are thinking of dating this person, and, you know, they were asking my opinion because as a spiritual leader. 
They say, Pastor, I'm interested in this guy. He's re- he really likes me, and he actually loves me. He's a, he's a good person. I say, define good. What do you mean by good? But anyway, the word good might not be good enough. May I? Then how should we present God to the non-believers with a, for effective evangelism? Let me present. Maybe we can start with God is righteous. He's a righteous God. As a matter of fact, that was the God that apostles preached. He is righteous God. That you need to repent of your unrighteous ways. Then He will forgive you. And as you receive the forgiveness, you will understand the love of God. Then you will understand how God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to us. Man! I understand as a believer, God loves us. But to the non-believers, we don't start with that. We can't start with that. It's not effective. They'll get, they'll get confused. They will just take advantage of it. I don't need to repent. That's gonna, they're gonna, it's going to come to that. I hope you understand my point. I'm not saying that God is not love. He is. But we don't present. How are we going to present God to these people who do not know God? who do not understand the love of God. He is the one who we came and to whom we will go. He is righteous God. He is the one who will judge us, all of us, fairly and deal with anything that is not right in us. That's God. I think we need to preach that God to the people who do not know Jesus or who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Do you remember I said there is a difference between believing in Jesus and believing that Jesus? Right? Are you willing to trust your life and give everything to Him with a risk? That's believing in somebody. When Jesus prayed to the Father, did you know? He prayed, especially in the the night before the crucifixion in Gethsemane, remember? He was praying. The night before the greatest injustice in the history, the cross was the greatest injustice. He was innocent. He didn't have any sin, but he was crucified. Greatest injustice is a crucifixion. But anyway, night before, you know what he said? What was, how did God, Jesus was calling God the Father? How did he address him? He said, righteous Father. Righteous Father. He put his trust in a righteous God. I tell you, if God is not righteous, we should not. We cannot trust him. Amen. Now, what does he mean by then, God is righteous? Two things. Let me just go very quickly. It means everything he does is right. That's what he means, righteous. No one will ever be able to accuse God doing anything wrong. But people today are doing it all the time, right? Every, everything is right except God. They complain that God is not doing the things right. That's what we complain. How could you let this thing happen? Why is this thing happening to me, God? 
We always complain, don't we? Actually, somebody told me, actually, my grandmother told me one time, I was as a young boy, I was complaining about the weather. It's like, why is it so cold? Because she was always taking me to the morning prayer. At 3.30 in the morning, man, it was tough. That's why I didn't want to go to my grandma's house. She would wake me up and say, hey, time to go to church. And I was like, why? I'm going to fall asleep. Come with me. And I'll tell you that. I already told you that story. But I remember I was complaining about the weather. Man, I'm so, so, so cold. Why so cold? Don't we do that in Chicago? Man, Chicago weather is crazy. Trust me. If you're not from Chicago, you know. You, you don't know. If you are from Chicago, <laughs> we know how the weather is so crazy and how often we complain. But you know what my grandmother told me? Hey, did you know that you're complaining about how God runs the universe when you complain about the weather? That's how my grandmother was, okay? She was so godly. She said, if you complain about your weather, basically you're complaining about how God is running. Do you really think you can run this universe better than God? But we do that all the time, do we? I do that all the time. How easily we imply that we can do a better job than God does. <laughs> if I can do better, how could you do that, God? We wouldn't let that happen if we were God. That's what we say. Listen, my brothers and sisters. Righteous God will do everything right. That's what I mean by God is righteous. If you believe that, say amen. He's absolutely fair, absolutely just. He is going to do what is right because he is righteous. Everything he does is right. Fair. He will do what is right in the judgment day. I'll tell you. He will be fair. You, nobody will, can say, it's not fair. Oh, that's all I ever hear from my kids. It's not fair. No one will be able to say to God in the judgment day, it's not fair. He will do right things. Our government will not do the fair things, I tell you. None of them will be able to do that except God. Okay? All the unanswered questions in life, my brothers and sisters, I know there are some questions that we cannot answer, especially when tragedy happens in our lives, right? How am I going to say if young parents lost a young baby, is my baby with God? You know what? You know what I will tell them? It actually happened to me. I don't know certain answers. Why is it my good, my good mother, but who did not believe in Christ? Is she in hell? All kinds of different questions. And it's fair to ask those kind of questions. By the way, don't be afraid to ask questions to God. And I tell you, we might not have all the answers because we're not God. Certain things are secret to God, right? Certain things we cannot know. But I know one thing, though. I know God well enough to know whatever He does, whatever He did, was absolutely right. Do you know God well enough to trust Him with the answers to questions which He won't give you this, in this life? But you will say, you are absolutely right. I know even though the life questions, all the happenings in my life, it does not make sense to me whatsoever. And I'm confused, and I'm angry, I'm frustrated, but one thing that I cannot deny is that what? I know God well enough through the Scripture 
that, you know what, even through my experience, you know what, whatever he did, whatever he does, whatever he will do is absolutely right. That I can trust. Amen. That's faith in Christ. A lot of times, kids, as a kid, young kids, they do that to the parents. They don't know what parents are thinking. They don't know. But one thing the kids do is what? I'm going to trust you even though it does not make sense, right, to me. So that's what it means. God is righteous, meaning everything he does is right. Second, also it means he can, do, he can never do anything wrong, right? Just flip the coin. He can never do anything wrong. That's what I mean by God is righteous. You know what? There are things that God cannot do. You might say, what? He cannot tell a lie? Right? Everything that he speaks is truth. He can never tell a lie. He cannot break his promises. He won't break his promises. He cannot break his promises. He cannot. He cannot be unfair. <laughs> right? He cannot force us to love him. Did you know that? He doesn't force us. He will not force us. That's the crazy thing about it. He cannot let go of evil unpaid. And someone say, what about this world so unfair? Well, wait. It's not over yet. He is righteous. And we can trust God totally because he's righteous. No one else can trust him like that in this world. Amen. Now, if God is righteous, that's how we need to present to the people, I think, for the effective evangelism. And we say he's righteous. Therefore, repent and believe. Then you will have, you will understand the love of God that we've been talking about. Repent. Come back to Him and experience His love that is beyond the measure for God is love. Amen? We need to be very clear about that. What was happening into our evangelism, I think, is that we've been, instead of giving the full dosage of the gospel, we've been inoculating the gospel, the people. Take out the main ingredient, but we just give them just, some people go inoculating the gospel. That's why they're immune to actual gospel. <laughs> they think they kind of believe. They're being deceived. Their body, their mind is being this, thinking that, oh, I know the gospel, but do you really know the full dosage of the gospel? Or are you just getting the, just parts of it? But that's not their problem. It's our problem, isn't it? How we as a Christians presenting the gospel. Are we inoculating the gospel? Are we giving them the full dosage? Are we presenting the gospel? We cannot do that anymore. Time is urgent. Things are different now. We don't have much time anymore to do that. It is my prayer that we will understand who He is. And with God's wisdom, biblically, as we learn, we will be able to present God as who He is effectively.
so that we can effectively share the gospel to people, to know the truth of God, to know the life that they can have, to know the love of God, which is greater than anything else. Amen? I hope you understand my heart. I'm not trying to confuse us, but I want to challenge all of us. How are we going to present the gospel? How are we going to present God to the world? And how are you thinking about God today? Amen? Let's pray.